0: leads to the glory of the resurrection. So we are in Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 20 today as we focus on Jesus on trial. Well, Ethan Crispo hit a local waffle house looking for a late night snack, but what he got instead was very much more so valuable. Crispo entered the waffle house on his way home from a birthday party, and he immediately noticed a problem. The store was full of what he called hungry, heavily irritated customers. And there was only one person working, a man named Ben. Crispo said, I sat down at my table and it's becoming clear that I'll likely be going home with an empty stomach. And then out from the blue, a man from the bar stood up. He asked Ben for an apron and he began to work behind the counter. It was a uh, transition so smooth, I initially assumed it was a staff member returning to their shift. But it wasn't. It was a kind stranger, a man who answered the call. He bussed tables, he did dishes, he stacked plates. When Ben finally came over to take Ethan's order, he gratefully confirmed the man's mysterious heroism. Who's that guy? Does he work here? No. Does he work at any Waffle House? Nope. Apparently, this man, identified only by the blue shirt he was wearing at the time, so inspired a spirit of cooperation that soon others joined in to help, including a lady that was in a dress and high heels. Pat Warner, a PR director for Waffle House, confirmed that there had been a scheduling miscue at that particular store, and he said it wasn't the first time that customers had been seen helping out in adverse circumstances. Warner said that's the, the great thing that we have with our customers, the sense of community. And Mr. Crispo agreed. It was just one of the most wild instances of really, really cool people just coming together. That's a great story, isn't it? I think it's a cool illustration of, the, of this truth, that one person can make a difference. One person can make a difference. Well, as we enter into our text in Mark 15 today, I'd like to focus on the impact of one person. Maybe not in a positive way as we see it with the Waffle House story, but this man's name is Pilate, Pontius Pilate. One man, he served as the governor of the southern half of Palestine. He was directly responsible the kingdom of Rome. His job description listed two primary responsibilities, collect as many taxes as he could and keep the peace. Well, he struggled with that second one because there were constant revolutions and threats in Judea, much like the turmoil that we see in the Middle East today. Incidentally, archaeology has confirmed that what the Bible says about Pilate Actually happened I want to share with you here a picture of an inscription from a first- century stone tablet that was dug up in the 1960s. It was found at Caesarea, which was the home base of Pontius Pilate. Well, when, when Pilate first came to power, he marched his armies through the city of Jerusalem to show his might. His troops carried the Roman banner, complete with an image of Caesar. And so the Jewish people objected. They objected to the graven image of Caesar on flags being marched through their city. And they protested for five long days. Finally, Pilate agreed to meet with the leaders. But then he surrounded them with his soldiers at that meeting. And he threatened to kill all of them. The Jews were so angry that they bared their necks, and they dared him to do so. Pilate backed down, and the graven images were reluctantly removed from the city of Jerusalem. Well, sometime later, Pilate built an aqueduct, and he financed it by stealing the temple treasury from the Jewish temple. That made the Jewish people more enraged and angry, and they started rioting in the streets. Pilate had his soldiers dressed as civilians, and they mingled with the mob, and as they did so, they clubbed many of the protesters to death. Caesar, back in Rome, received a number of written complaints about Pilate, and Pilate was on the hot seat. He couldn't afford another Jewish uprising. And so, today, as we consider Jesus' arrest, the Gospels show us that Jesus had two primary trials, each with three parts. The religious trial in front of the religious Jewish leaders ended in Mark 14, and we're picking it up in Mark 15, when Jesus has a trial before Pontius Pilate. And I want you to notice, as we follow the details of this trial, I want you to try to put yourself in Pilate's sandals, if you would in order to sense the dilemma that he's faced with as he wrestles, as he deliberates, and as he learns from his decision-making. I think we can learn from it as well. So let's begin first with Pilate's dilemma. Pilate's dilemma. Verse 1 of our text tells us this. As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, that is the Sanhedrin, and they bound Jesus And they led him away, and they delivered him over to Pilate. Now, Pilate only met with the public from sunrise until noon. And so we see here that the religious leaders are first in line early that morning at the palace. The Jewish leaders know exactly what they want. They want to get rid of Jesus. They want him dead. But they needed Pilate to condemn Jesus to death. It's something that they couldn't do on their own. Notice also in the text it says Jesus is bound. Think of his hands and his feet being bound together. It was a way to give the impression that Jesus was dangerous, that he was a threat to public order as they drag him in front of Pilate. The word delivered might fulfill Jesus' own prophecy. We read earlier when we were in chapter 10 of Mark in verse 33 when Jesus himself said, The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And so we see Jesus' own words coming to fruition. The Jewish leaders' charge against Jesus was blasphemy but they knew that that was a religious charge and it wouldn't matter an iota to Mr. Pilate. So instead, they accused Jesus of treason. That brings us to verse two in our text. It says, and Pilate asked him, that is Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, you have said so. And that word asked, it's a unique word. It means specifically to accost with an inquiry, all right? It's not a polite asking. It's a demanding. Are you the king of the Jews? The word you is emphatic as Pilate asks a direct, pointed question to Jesus. And we could translate Jesus' response this way. So you say, or you are correct. It's noteworthy here that the title king for Jesus is used six times in this chapter. King, And that was the same title that, if you remember, clear back to the beginning of Jesus' life. King Herod, 33 years before, was upset near the time of Jesus' birth when the wise men came and asked, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? The religious leaders desperately want Pilate to see Jesus as a direct threat to Caesar. Verse 3 tells us that the chief priest accused Jesus of many things. And in verse 4 and 5 we read, And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. And so these witnesses were making many accusations But notice they weren't giving any testimony, just accusing Jesus of all kinds of stuff. Jesus doesn't reply at all to any of the charges because they're absurd. And it's obvious to all that he is innocent. Interestingly, it says Pilate was amazed. We looked at that word a few weeks ago when we talked about Jesus. We talked about our own amazement being full of wonder and astonishment. That's the same word that it uses of Pilate here. Pilate was filled with wonder and astonishment at Jesus as he stands there, not rebutting all of the accusations that are being thrown his way. Well, Pilate's dilemma becomes more pronounced because according to verse 10, he perceives that the religious leaders had delivered Jesus out of envy out of envy. In Luke's account of this trial, in Luke chapter 23, Pilate declares to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. In other words, case dismissed. There's no basis for anything here. That's Pilate's summation of the trial. And yet, and yet we see Pilate, the guy with authority, the man in charge, the one who was feared he is faced with a dilemma regarding Jesus. You know, it occurs to me that it's a similar dilemma that we all face concerning Jesus. We must come to understand who Jesus is and what that means for our life, for our decision-making, for our future. Jesus is either the king of our life Or he's something else. If he's king, then we must submit to him. If he is anything else, then we are reducing Jesus to a creation of our own understanding. Kind of like a a lucky charm or a, a producer of wise sayings or someone that we use at our own convenience. You see, that is the dilemma that we face with Jesus. Jesus is either king of all or he's not king at all. Jesus brings each of us to a dilemma. And that brings us then to our our next point, and that is Pilate's deliberation. He moves from dilemma to deliberation. When Pilate couldn't dismiss his dilemma easily by telling the leaders to do their own lynching, he's forced to deliberate. And in the process, I want you to see that he tries at least five different ways to avoid having to make a decision about Jesus. The first thing he does is he tries to pass the buck. He tries to pass the buck. According to to Luke's account, Pilate discovered that Jesus was from Galilee. Well, that was the territory that Herod was in charge of, not him. And this was a loophole that looked like it might provide a way out for Pilate. In Luke 23, and verse 7, it says, And when he learned that Jesus belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who himself was in Jerusalem at that time. Now, This is not the Herod of Jesus' birth, this is another Herod 33 years later, but it's the Herod that you might remember murdered John the Baptist, had John's head cut off, and he had threatened to kill Jesus once before. And so Jesus comes before Herod, and he is silent, refusing to perform miracles, refusing to answer any of Herod's questions. Well, Pilate saw Jesus as some sort of eccentric rabbi of some sort, Herod viewed him as an entertainer. He wants to see the show. But when Herod doesn't get the show he wants from Jesus, Luke tells us that he and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked Jesus and sent him back to Pilate. So Pilate tried to pass the buck, but it didn't work. And so next, Pilate looks for an easy way out. If he can't dismiss the case altogether and he can't transfer it to Herod, then maybe he can try a political maneuver. And so back to our text in verses 6 through 8. Now, at the feast, Pilate used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. So to keep a a lid on the explosive Passover time. Remember, thousands of Jews were flowing into Jerusalem at this particular time of year. And Pilate was on edge trying to keep the peace. And so each year, in order to kind of appease the crowd, he would release one political prisoner. Provided that there would be no trouble from the crowds. Well, he's hoping the offer of a Passover pardon this year will solve his problem. Now, Barabbas was what was called a zealot. The zealots were a group that were all about overthrowing Rome and Roman rule, and they were about doing that violently. And they were even known to kill their own fellow Jews who opposed their call for war against Rome. These were hard and nasty guys. And so the Bible calls Barabbas an insurrectionist. Pilate believed that if he allowed them to choose between the the most despicable uh, prisoner in jail at that time and Jesus, that surely they would pick for Jesus to be set free. Well, verse 11 of our text tells us that the leaders instead stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And so Pilate's hope for an easy out is quickly dashed. Well, the third thing I want you to notice is that Pilate then ignores good advice. He ignores good advice. In the midst of this maneuvering, Matthew's account in chapter 27 reveals that Pilate's wife sent him a message. And that message was, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. And so Mrs. Pilate is alarmed by a nightmare she had, and she tries to warn her husband to be careful. Notice that she refers to Jesus as a righteous man. But tragically, Pilate refuses to listen to his own wife. By the way, guys, listen to your wives, all right? They're usually smarter than you are. Amen. Amen. Well, next, Pilate try something else. He tries to appeal to reason. Let's be reasonable, everybody. When he was not able to fully shut the door on the mob action that seemed to be rising, Pilate asks in verse 12, then what shall I do with the man that you call the king of the Jews? I want you to notice there that he says the man you call the king of the Jews. He's kind of rubbing it in with the Jewish leaders at this point, maybe even needling them a bit. But the answer is deafening and and it's unified. In, In verse 13, what did they cry out? Crucify him. Pilate then tries to reason with them in verse 14 saying, why, what evil has he done? They weren't all at all interested though in a rational discourse with Pilate at this point because their minds were made up and they shouted all the more, crucify him. And so his last effort Effort number five for Pilate as he tries to please the people. And so when the crowds cried out to have Christ crucified, we read in verse 15 of our text, So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now Mark, in his gospel, he passes quickly over that scourging. With just three words in English, having scourged Jesus. Scourging, I want you to recognize, was a vicious and a bloody series of whippings. And it was designed to inflict maximum suffering while still prolonging the life of the victim. Roman soldiers had become experts at at scourging, at bringing people to the brink of death without causing death itself through these vicious beatings. I share that because I want you to know that all of this fulfills the prophecies of Isaiah some 700 years before the time of Jesus. In Isaiah 50, verse 6, it says, speaking of the Messiah, I gave my back to those who strike. Well, Jesus, after the scourging is then presented to the people, Pilate was hoping they would relent after they'd seen this terrible, terrible punishment laid down upon Jesus. But he misjudged the venom, the hatred. Blood was in the water, and they were not to be dissuaded. And friends, that that makes me think about this. When we deliberate about Jesus, you know, sometimes we look for ways out. Ways out of his way. Pilate's self-serving thought patterns should stand as a warning to all of us who would deliberate too long about Jesus and would miss who he really is. So that leads us to our final point. After Pilate's dilemma, after his deliberation, we come to Pilate's decision. When Pilate was faced with a dilemma, he deliberated as long as he possibly could. And now, though, he is forced to make a decision. Unfortunately, his decision is more a non-decision than anything else. Again, back to Matthew's Gospel in chapter 27. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. You see, no matter how hard Pilate scrubbed, there was no way for him to wash away the blood from his hands, to get rid of the guilt in his heart. You know, there's even an ancient legend. I don't know if it's true or not. It's a legend, but it says that in the years following Jesus' crucifixion, that Pilate was still frantically washing his hands, trying to cleanse his conscience from the blood of Jesus. Pilate hands down his sentence. The sentence is carried out, the handing down of the sentence is carried out to a place called Gabbatha, according to John chapter 19. And that refers to the, the stone pavement in front of the judgment seat that Pilate would have sat in. And that area included a, a flagstone inscribed by Roman soldiers with a pattern of etchings which they would have used to play a game called the Game of Kings. It was a dice game in which the playing piece was the prisoner of the day. And they would mock the prisoner as a trumped-up king, which is exactly what happened to Jesus in verses 16 through 20 of our text. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace. That is the, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. Purple was the the color of royalty. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed. Kind of to look like the scepter of the king. And spitting on him and kneeling down in homage in false worship to him. And when they had mocked him, They stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out, that would be outside the city, to crucify him. Well, friends, like like Pilate, we are faced with a dilemma. What will we do with Jesus? Will we spend our energies deliberating about him? perhaps even looking for excuses to get out of doing the right thing? Will we engage in some form of mental gymnastics or self-reasoning about Jesus, creating a a savior of our, our own design, our own opinions? Will we ignore the good advice of others who speak of his righteousness, including Mark and the other gospel writers? Will Will we spend years learning about Jesus without ever fully coming to know Jesus intimately? You see, some people, even people within the church, spend a lifetime deliberating about Jesus without ever fully making a decision. You see, to choose Christ completely is to be aligned with him. To not choose him completely is to be aligned against him. To not receive him as savior now is to face him as judge later. Do nothing and we end up in hell. Will we try to wash our hands or will we worship him as our sin substitute? You see, one person can make a difference for themselves. They can make a difference for others who follow after them. And so our question this morning is, will our decision be rooted in selfish desire, like Pilate, or in merciful sacrifice for others, like Jesus? In her book, The God Who Hung on the Cross, journalist Ellen Vaughn tells a gripping story of how the gospel came to a small village in Cambodia. In September 1999, an, an evangelist, a man by the name of Tui Singh, traveled to Kampong Thom province in northern Cambodia. Throughout this very isolated area, most of the villagers had cast their lots with Buddhism or Spiritism. Christianity was virtually unheard of in these mountain communities. But much To Mr. Singh's surprise, when he arrived in one small rural village, the people warmly embraced him and his message about Jesus. And so when he asked the villagers about their openness to the gospel, an old woman shuffled forward. She bowed and grasped Mr. Singh's hands as she said, We have been waiting for you for 20 years now. And then she told him the story. The story of the mysterious God who had hung on the cross. In the 1970s, the Khmer Rouge, the brutal communist-led regime, took over Cambodia. And they were destroying everything in their path. When the soldiers finally descended on this small, rural, northern village in 1979 they immediately rounded up the villagers and forced them to start digging their own graves. And after the villagers had finished digging, they prepared themselves to die at the hands of these vicious soldiers. As the people knelt before the graves, some screamed out to Buddha. Others screamed to demon spirits or to their ancestor spirits. But one woman in that village started to cry for help based on a distant childhood memory, a story her grandmother had told her about a God who hung on a cross. The woman prayed to that unknown God on a cross. Surely, if this God had known suffering himself, he would have compassion on their plight. Well, suddenly, her solitary cry became one great wail, as the entire village started praying to the God who had suffered and hung on a cross. And as they continued facing their own graves, slowly the wailing faded to a quiet crying. And then there was an eerie silence in the muggy jungle, slowly, as they dared to turn around and face their captors, they discovered that the soldiers were all gone. There were no soldiers left. And so, as the woman finished telling the story, she told Pastor saying that ever since that humid day from 20 years ago, these villagers had been waiting, waiting for someone to arrive and share the rest of the story about the God who hung on the cross. You see, one person can make a difference. One truth shared can make a difference. One obedient traveling evangelist can make a difference. And most importantly, one man dying on a cross for you and for me can make all the difference of eternity. And so today, if you recognize that you have a dilemma that you've deliberated long enough, I want to ask you this. Will you decide today to pursue, to grow, to focus more fully on your relationship with the great difference maker, Jesus Christ? Let's pray together. Father God, we are so grateful. Grateful for those in our life who have taken the time to make a difference by telling us about Jesus. Father, we come today humbly recognizing that without Jesus, we are nothing, that he is the great difference maker. Father, we pray today that your spirit would work deeply into our hearts. Lord, if we have been deficient in any way, Father, if we've been stuck deliberating too long, About Jesus, we've not made him fully our king. Lord, we pray that your spirit would provoke us to do something today to make a commitment to follow Jesus more fully. Father, help us to focus on Jesus, on knowing him intimately, not facts, but knowing our Savior. Father, we pray that you would help us to make a difference in this world, one person at a time, as we share the good news of the God who hung on a cross. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, in just a moment, we're going to sing our our closing song. And each week, our elders are available to pray with and for you. They'll be there under the prayer corner sign. And if you'd like to make a spiritual decision of some sort, if you'd like them to pray for you about something significant in your life or for someone else, our elders consider it their greatest privilege and honor to pray with and for you. So we encourage you to make your way there as we stand and sing our final song. Let's stand together. May God bless us today as we serve a risen Savior.